you might need a pen and paper because I've got a few things going on that I need to tell you about. I'm doing two shows with Helen Rose, former Queensland policewoman, and the show is called The Consequences of Murder. We're doing the first one on the 12th of August at the Thirsty Crow in Wagga Wagga. We're then doing another show at the Victorian State Library Village Roadshow Theatre on the 15th of October. Then I'm coming up to Sydney because you've asked and I've listened. I'm doing the Mornington Monster on the 1st of October at the Auditorium, 37 Reservoir or Reservoir, depends where you went to school, uh, Street in Surrey Hills, New South Wales. And did I mention filming started from a TV series? There is just a little bit happening in my life and it's all because of you, my listeners. Thank you. Tickets through Eventbrite. Have a great week. Uh, Hello and thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. And just a couple of things I'd like to ask you to consider. Firstly, my guests share their personal stories, which others may see differently. No one will see a situation the same. It's just human nature. Uh, Secondly, my podcasts aren't suitable for children and some adults for that matter. So please consider if it's right for you and contact Lifeline or any other support service if you find yourself affected by my subject matter. We were the last to drive out and as we were driving out, the sides of the roads were igniting and you look back and the bus stop where we were at, the flames were coming up over the bus stop and it was pitch black and the noise of just the forest and that exploding was just incredible. The name Cameron Kane may not mean much to some of you out there, but ask anyone around King Lake in Victoria, and I'm pretty sure that everyone you ask will either know him or know of him. King Lake is a beautiful, peaceful little country town about one and a half hours northeast of Melbourne on the outskirts of the Great Dividing Range. People travel to King Lake for picnics, for scenic walks, bushwalks, camping in the forest, uh, beautiful mountain bike trails and magical views of the Yarra Valley and Port Phillip Bay. But they don't come to King Lake to look at their lakes because it actually doesn't have a lake. But everything in that beautiful little town changed on the 7th of February 2009. Cameron Kane was the local policeman at King Lake on that day when, with the perfect storm of extreme weather conditions, lightning, collapsed power lines and arson, bushfires exploded around the state and became known as the Black Saturday bushfires. Three and a half thousand buildings were destroyed, including 2,029 houses, 7,000 people were displaced and 173 died, including two firefighters. The majority of deaths were in the King Lake area, and let's not forget the thousands of animals who also perished on that day. King Lake was one of the worst affected towns in Victoria. Fires weren't fully extinguished for another five weeks. Just after sunrise, the morning after the fires had swept through and demolished King Lake,
Cameron located 11 bodies in three houses. He managed to help in evacuating hundreds of people out of the area to safety and for the longest hour of his life, he thought that he may have mistakenly sent his wife and children into a burning inferno rather than away from it. That horrific shift changed Cameron's life forever. The shift lasted 30 hours, much of it on his own, after his calls for help and assistance weren't responded to. Most of us who live in Victoria will never forget that day, but many like Cameron will never recover either. I remember reading an article about Cameron's heroic efforts and on driving around his community the following morning, he said on the police radio, oh my goodness, I can hardly say this, King Lake is gone. My town is gone. Cameron tried to continue working in a career he loved, but eventually surrendered to PTSI. I remember him saying to me, I miss me. He'd given everything he could until he had nothing more to give. He just burned out. One of Cameron's saving graces was his role as president of the King Lake Football and Netball Club. What he and some of his friends did with that football netball club after the fires is is an inspiring story in itself which I'll get Cameron to tell us about pretty shortly. So thanks for your time, Cameron, and uh, welcome to NFI. Thanks for having me, Narelle. It's an absolute pleasure. (laughs) Hey, you get the NFI, don't you? A lot of people don't who aren't in the job. Yes, I get the NFI. It's like TJF. Oh, don't, because I'll have to explain that as well. <laughs> For the listeners, if you don't know what NFI is, ask your kids. I think it was when I was at the rape squad that I used to have a stapler on my desk and had to put my initials on it because everything used to go walking yeah. and some bright spark decided to put an I on the end in the NF, which yep. always made me laugh and it, and it has ever since. So <laughs> when... Uh, I was thinking about a name for my podcast. I just had to use it somehow, which is how I came up with Narelle Fraser interviews. And a few people said to me, you can't do that. (laughs) And I said, just watch me. (laughs) Yes, I can. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you can. (laughs) (laughs) Look, Cam, you can thank your daughter for dobbing uh, you into me for today. Dobbing me in, yes, yes. She's assured me that you're okay talking about it and you've assured me that you are as well. Yeah, no, all good. I just wonder sometimes, do you like, how can people like you and I share such horrific incidents that we've been involved in yet others can't even allow themselves to think about it, let alone talk about it? It's funny how we're all so different. I do, but I also find that as soon as you say PTSD, they all think, um, I suppose the most famous ones are the Vietnam War veterans and the, the flashbacks and everything. So they're, they're all thinking, oh, yeah, but it, it's so different for so many different people that um, it's hard to explain, yeah. I was talking to a friend recently and I've decided that I'm going to try and refrain from using the term PTSD and I'm going to try and use the words PTSI instead because Although medically the term disorder is probably appropriate, I I just feel it's got 
negativity written all over it and it just adds to the stigma, I think, associated with mental health issues. Ah. The I stands for injury because it is an injury and the more that we think of it as that, it can only be a good thing. It is, but I also, you you say I got PTSD and they go, oh, what's that? And so it's just a certificate to say that I'm loopy. So, (laughs) um, and you go to the chemist and ask for your nuffy drugs and the chemist has a chuckle. So I suppose it depends on how you look at it really, yeah. Isn't that funny? When I go to the chemist to pick up my medication, I almost go incognito (laughs) and I whisper to the staff, you know, almost under my breath with my hand covering my mouth, I'm here for my... <laughs> and hope that nobody recognises me. I still feel a sense of shame. Oh, shame's probably the wrong, wrong word. Maybe embarrassment, I think, yeah, that I'm on medication. Or like it's a big secret. But the, the, yeah, the embarrassing thing is I go up and get me Lovan, then at the same time I pick Lovan up for me dog. <laughs> oh, don't tell me your dog's got anxiety as well. Uh, I picked up Dave to be a PTSD dog, took him to all the training and everything, and he's more nervous around people than me, so it's actually me calming him down from being so nervous and jittery. So it's worked, but he's no good outside as a PTSD dog. <laughs> oh, that's good. It's very funny. But, you know, I didn't know you had a PTSD dog. I can't think of the correct name, but it's like a carer dog. Oh, yeah, there is a word. Like, as I said, I, t- I took him to training and he was good and everything, but, yeah, he just – it's funny. He doesn't like people. He doesn't like being out in the community. He hates being out of the house. <laughs> and like he's, see what you've done to him? <laughs> I've just – I've mentally passed it on. The poor bugger's a big dog. He's a wolfhound cross mastiff and he's just a pea heart, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so lovely, but all jokes aside, in a way – whether he's been good for you or you've been good for him, it's no doubt helped because you have something or someone to care about and think and about and look after it. It'd have to help. Oh, definitely. Look, I, Dave's the best thing that's happened to me in since leaving the job, I reckon, just having him around all day. Like it's, you look forward to home time when everyone starts coming home, but um, Dave's just been there through the thick and thin and, yeah, he's, he's my mate. So what are you doing with yourself these days, Cam? We'll we'll get to what happened on Black Saturday shortly, but you're no longer a policeman. So how do you fill in your days? Um, no, walking around in circles looking for something to do. Oh, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, I'm on six acres here in King Lake. Um, there's always something to do. And, um, and then with Sean's just um, picked up a house downtown, so shoot down and help her out and... And just help people around the community and that that just need someone for a couple of hours and also a mate of mine who's um, got his own business every now and then he needs a hand, so I help him out. So, But other than that, yeah, just keep yourself busy. Well, let's go to your policing career uh, up until the 7th of February 2009. Um, look, you know, like how long were you in for? What did you like about it? Maybe some memories that you'd like to share? Well, the funny thing is I've gone from P to P to P to P. I was a plumber and then I joined the police force and then I went and tried to become a politician and now I'm a pensioner. So of the four Ps. But um, in 1999 I joined the police force, the academy, 
and we were rushed out on the Thursday because the boss couldn't make it on the Friday, and we were rushed out for the Y2K bug. Remember that, New Year's? Gorgeous. <laughs> but um, so on the Thursday, we walked out of the academy. Monday morning, I started at Reservoir 7 a.m. on the van, and it was train versus truck on that intersection in High Street in Reservoir, and I had no idea what I was doing. And the officer said, oh, you can do the reports. <laughs> Good on you, yeah. Yeah. So that was my first day. So I was at Reservoir for nearly 12 months, then um, went up to Seymour for a couple of years. And whilst at Seymour, the bosses said they're going to build a station at King Lake because there's never been one. Um, Are you interested in being a local up there? So I put my hat in the ring and got it. And 17 years later, I was still there. Loved it. So were you at King Lake for 17 years? Yes, because what happened is when they started building the station – they um, quite happily tried to burn it down a couple of times. <laughs> and then we opened up and it was just four walls. So I'm in a, a a really rare position where I've walked into a police station when it was there was not even any posters on the wall, not even any furniture, and it went from the Wild West up here to a different community where people want to come and have their pony and uh, mini bike. So... I have seen the results of what um, policing can do. And what can policing do? Oh, amazing. The turnaround, just um, a community that was look low social economic society and a lot of um, domestics, um, but they were all worried about the coppers coming up. But, look, we were lucky. We had five brilliant coppers up here that were just good country coppers and uh, the best tools are gift of the gab, and once they realised- You know, I reckon you might have that. It's the best tool you've got. And the, um, I think then they, the people realise that coppers aren't here to screw you over. They're just here to help, and if someone steps over the line or there's an annoying neighbour, they're there to help. It's as simple as that, and and we're there for the community, not the other way around. So yeah, and and also working up the country, you, you you find that the locals want to help, and they love giving you information and help and everything else. So that works hand in hand. I didn't work in the country for much of my career, but I loved it when I did. However, I didn't live in the town. Do you find it difficult living in the area that you police? Um, look, I watched at Seymour. There was a heap of guys that lived and worked in Seymour, and, and I just thought, well, it's not that bad. And then when I got King Lake, I was the president of the footy club as well, and everyone says, oh, the footy club. Uh. Look, I've never had a dealing with in 20 years of anyone from the footy club. Um, and every time I went to a party you know, to turn the music down or something happened, it was, oh, g'day, Speedy, how you going? Yeah, no worries, mate. And the, the amount of respect I got was just amazing. And, yes, I live up here and it was virtually 24-7 job. Everyone knew me as a cop and they'd come around and want papers signed. But oh, it's better than working in West Melbourne, I reckon. Yeah, I reckon you might be right, but you don't get much of a break, do you? Like, as you say, it's 24-7. People are, are coming around to the house to have papers signed, they grab you in the street to say this has happened or that's happened. Obviously, it didn't bother you. 
No, I'll tell you the worst thing that happens is you go to a party somewhere and you're having a beer and then people start filming it because you're the local copper having a beer. And you just think, really? And that's why I loved the footy club because I went there as a plumber and played footy there and since 94 and I could relax. I knew everyone had me back there. I knew that, you know, if I wanted to have a few too many drinks, I was safe to do so because I was speedy and everyone just knew me as speedy and I really appreciated that and I told them that. So I was lucky to have that outlet. And just to clarify here, when you talk about having yep. a beer, it's not in uniform. No, 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 no. And yeah, I know no, that no. sounds silly, but I've learned to never assume. So I think it oh, just dear, needs no, to be spelled no. out just in case that's misunderstood. No, no, Saturdays were, um, Saturdays were my days off. I worked a lot of Saturday nights so I could go to the football. But I didn't drink if I was working Saturday night either. <laughs> nice to know. <laughs> Just thought we needed to clarify that. Yeah, I'll clarify that. Hey, you glossed over before, but when you said that you had a train and a truck on the first day at Reservoir, yep. did you mean that it was an accident? Like, was it a fatal? It was a truck carrying – no, no, it was carrying flour. And I think it's the, it was the largest intersection in Melbourne that High Street, Spring Street, Cheddar Road intersection. And, um, yeah, I just couldn't believe it. We just – first of all, I'm putting a gun on my hip like that, that, and walking out in the public. Like, that's just strange in itself. And then to go out in this train, and then it, the first thing on the report is how many passengers. And you think, what? <laughs> Welcome to the police force. Yeah, and no wonder your colleague said for you to do the reports, but – but for anyone listening who isn't in policing, the paperwork in policing was a killer and I have no doubt it still is. Exactly. <laughs> um, and that's what you'd do. You'd give the junior member the paperwork because it used to take forever, <laughs> particularly the paperwork for uh, a truck versus train. Uh, it was a nightmare, but we got through it. <laughs> Look, my next question was going to be where did you enjoy working the most, but I think I might know the answer to that. Yeah, after 17 years at King Lake, it'll have to be the lake, yeah. I suppose we might go to the 7th of Feb 2009 if you're okay with that. Yep. Can you take us through that day in as much or little detail as you feel comfortable? Yeah, look, we woke up and it was stinking hot. We actually went to mum and dad's because our air cons were playing up and I was to start at 6 o'clock Saturday night and then – from mum and dad's place in King Lake, you could see the fires in Kilmore taking off. I thought, oh, what's going on here? So then I rang Woody at work and said, what's it going? And he said, oh, it's turned to the proverbial. I've got to go. There's a fire in Murrindindi. And the one in Kilmore didn't worry me because I didn't think that would do anything. But the one in Murrindindi, if the, with the northerly wind, could come back up through Glenburn into King Lake. So then we went back home and I rang Woody again. I said, what's happening? And he's all crackly. So, oh, look, it's, it's turned bad. So I jumped in the shower and I reckon that was about five o'clock. And just as I got out of the shower, the power went off. And it, got, it was about 20 past. I jumped in the old ute and I walked outside and the, the sky was bubbling grey. I thought, geez, that's weird. So I jumped in the old ute and I thought, I'll go to work early. Um, drove up, up over the top of the mountain. It was grey, bubbly, but you couldn't see anything other than there was a yellow flicker to my right down off the side of the mountain. I thought, geez, that looked like a flame. So then I 
went into the police station, all the power was out, so I started the generator and I rang Woody. I said, where are you? And he said, look, can you come down in your car? I'm at King Lake West. We'll swap because there's a fire approaching down around his place in St Andrews. So I quickly kitted up and jumped back in the car. Now, that was probably about 10 minutes. And then I shot up over the hill back down to King Lake West, which is probably about 11 kilometres. As I pulled up to the school, Woody was pulling out the police car and he said, I've got to go. There's a fatality, a car pile up on top of the hill and a fatality. And I said, it's impossible. I've just come, come through there like two minutes ago. There's nothing. There's not even any cars in the road. We turned around. I followed him back up to the Pheasant Creek store. And that's where we were hit with, um, it was like a wall of smoke. And as we drove into it, we thought there's cars coming. This is not good. So we did a U-turn and went back to the Pheasant Creek supermarket, the old supermarket. But on one side of the road, there's a pine plantation. And on the shop side, there was a petrol bowser, gas bottles, and a milk bar, a car park, and then the main road. And as we're sitting there, the car park filled up, then the road filled up. And then I was thinking, oh, God, I told Laura and the, to grab the kids and head up to the police station where the air con's on, the TV's on, but have they gone? Because I don't know how you can get back to the King Lake Police Station. So all of a sudden, like, the roar of jet engines was just deafening. And you could hear the um, forest exploding. And there was oh, – look, if I said – 40 cars in the car park and on the main road. I'm having a guess, probably was, probably a little bit more. Um, and then Woody said, I'm going to go down to King Lake West. I'll ring you when I get there to say that it's safe to come through. The scary thing is I forgot the phone never, ever works at that shop, ever. But on that day, standing in the middle of the road, as it's black as midnight, the phone rang and he said, it's safe, get them down here. And, you know, when it's daylight and you can hear everything, well, I had to scream at the top of my voice to everyone, get in the car and head back to West. And we got everyone in the car. They all turned around and there was a young bloke in a van on my right-hand side. And I remember saying to him, mate, you can't go anywhere because I'm coming with you. And we were the last to drive out. And as we were driving out, the sides of the roads were igniting. And you look back and the bus stop where we're at, the flames were coming up over the bus stop. And it was pitch black. And the noise of just the forest and that exploding was just incredible. So that was the first half hour, 45 minutes of the shift. God, I've got goosebumps, as probably the listeners have too, just thinking about the fact that the people at the Pheasant Creek store, they would have been incinerated if you hadn't have got them out. And that they'd stayed there. Yes, yeah, and we all knew that if we stood, if we if, if we stayed there, the gas bottles, the petrol bowsers, and like just the pine trees alone, it was just a recipe for disaster. So I uh, drove down the King Lake West um, CFA, and everyone parked down there. Then we got a job for kids stuck in the King Lake West Primary School, and we thought that's a bit strange. So we ran down. And at the time, it was all getting extended. So they had um, eight-foot fencing all the way around the school. So we got in the back way, looked around the school, and there was nothing there. It must have been just a, a hoax or something. But then the fire came at the back of the school, and we thought, well, we'll go to the front. We couldn't because the eight-foot fence was there. So I had to run back around beside the fire and back up to the station. 
And um, on returning, I come around the corner and found my wife, Laura, with um, a friend, Ross, um, who was in tears in her arms. I said, well, what's happened here? She goes, he's just got off the phone from Beck. Apparently, um, Macca and Neve have perished with her brother. And Macca and Neve are two of their four kids. One's nine and one uh, was 14. Uh, and I thought, no, God, you just, you've taken them to King Lake. It's safe. Everything, it should be good. Um, so then, look, that we stayed at the King Lake West for a little while and tried to stop cars from going anywhere. Uh, then we jumped in the police car and thought, right, let's head into King Lake. Now, what's usually a five-minute drive took us probably 40 minutes just to get through trees. Why? Oh, just trees on the road, power lines on the road, um, dead animals. Um, every car we pulled up to, they'd sort of melted into the bitumen and all the um, automatics and the mag wheels and that had turned to like um, liquid mercury. And so we're driving along and then we come across, uh, there was a friend of mine's four-wheel drive up on an angle. And as we kept driving, we went up to the footy ground and there was car loads of people on the oval and they couldn't get in. So I didn't have the keys on me. So we smashed our way in, got them drinks, and apparently they would come up from um, Strathewan and they were waiting for some friends to come behind because the headlights were there, but then there was no headlights. So they were worried about what happened to them. Then we jumped back in the car and headed up over the top of the mountain. We come across the car accident and there was the local shop owner, um, Ross. He's got the Capa Rossi's um, Italian restaurant and pizza. And I said, what's going on, Ross? And, like, it was still black and hot and fires burning. And he said, Papa, Papa. And it, what had happened, that he was driving into King Lake to safety and got into a car accident and a car had smashed into the back door where his dad was and they perished in the car um and ross said look i'm waiting for the kids and wife and i said i've seen their car up on the angle at the oval do you know where they are and he broke down he said i haven't seen them so it was just lucky enough i'd known some locals i rang around i rang um sarah exton i think i got in touch with at Exxon's Water, and apparently there was a heap of people there, and they were all there. His wife and four kids were there. So um, Ross from Capa Rossi's, um, he just broke down on the side of the road. I'll never forget it. He just dropped at my feet, and, yeah, it was just – that's when I thought, this could turn to shit. <laughs> As if it wasn't so, already. Well, yeah, and I thought – I wonder if the story, because everyone was saying, oh, the police station's gone, the pub's gone, the supermarket's gone. I'm thinking, nah. Look, we drove in into the main street and we had to pull literally a car out of the bitumen because it melted into the bitumen to get through. We were the first emergency service in the main street and there was, look, I'll say 500 people just running around doing things and we pulled up and Without a lie, this guy racked up to my window. I was on the passenger side, and it was Leo Sayer, I reckon. I'll never forget him. He had curly hair. He looked like Leo Sayer, and he had smoke coming out of his hair. And he said, mate, can we get into the police station? I looked, and we were the only lights on because I had the generator on. And I said, oh, sorry, mate, we're not even in there. We're just seeing what we can do. And he goes, yeah, yeah, no worries. And there was a car out the front of the police station with motorbike trailer on. That was fully engulfed. 
The petrol station next door was still exploding. Um, the front poles in the police station were burning. And look, we blew it thinking, oh, the paperwork's going to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it stayed, unfortunately. But um, so then we walked into the um, police station. We thought, we looked out the back fence and the LPG gas cylinder was still going off next door. And we just think, well, this is bad. So, and then we realised that, yeah, Ross, um, friend of mine, Ross Buchanan, possibility that the kids had gone because um, we were hearing a lot more things and you couldn't really tell how much damage was done because it was still night. So driving around, we went across the King Lake CFA station um, and that was like a makeshift, I'll call it a mass unit. It was like a makeshift hospital. And there was a lady now I know is um, Ross Buchanan's mother-in-law was wrapped in silver paper, uh, silver um, blanket, because she was in the house with the kids and got out but realised there was some still in the house. So she tried to get back in and she had 60% burns to her body. Um, and there was another lady there that had burnt lungs from the smoke and fire. So um, there was a TMU unit there, traffic management unit there with us because they thought they'd come up and find the local cop was dead. Uh, we took the lady with burnt lungs down to Whittlesea, and that usually takes oh, half hour. It took us nearly an hour to get down just over trees, power lines, um, and we got into Whittlesea. And when, as we got down towards Whittlesea, you look back across to Kilmore on the mountains, and that's when it hit us. We, uh, Roger and myself looked at each other and thought, wow, that's massive. <laughs> and so we dropped her off and then um, shot back up the hill. But on the way up, um, there was, I think, 13, 14 ambulance, a CFA truck, and one cop car. And they were two boys from Seymour. Um, Scotty and um, oh, Scott Melville and it'll come to me. It'll come to me. That's in that a problem with Peter. You just your memory's gone. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> but and then as we got up, we went to the front ambulance and we said, "Look, there's probably four or five hundred people at King Lake West and probably a thousand people at King Lake. You need to separate the ambulance." And they said, "No." So we had a bit of an argument. They were all going to go to King Lake. Uh, we rocked up to King Lake West CFA and there was a fire. It had a jacket melted onto his back. So um, the Ambos did go over to the CFA and then we all headed off under King Lake again. And this is all about midnight, one o'clock. Um, at two o'clock, we're in the station, the phone rang and it was the boss from Seymour. And he said, look, Woody started work 10 o'clock Saturday morning. So he was still there at 2 o'clock Saturday night, Sunday morning. He got sent home. Um, and while well, on the phone, I said, well, what's happening? <laughs> and he's going, well, I'm, I've got, I'm, I'm, I'm heading off. I've got, yeah, no worries. So he left. And I tell you, I walked out the front door of the police station and locked the door. The poles were still on fire. And I looked and I thought, what the hell? am I going to do? <laughs> um, I Look, I try and I helped people out. I went back down to King Lake West um, 
and spoke to Laura because at the Pheasant Creek shop at the start, as we were vacating and telling everyone to go, Laura rocked up with the kids in the car and I thought, oh, thank God for that. So I knew they were safe at West after that. Um, come and check my house out. Um, went and done a few jobs. And then as the sun was coming up, I got a call to go and help the King Lake um, captain look for some people down behind uh, the police station. So as day broke, we're walking around in talcum powder, but it was, you know, the high boots that we wear. It was that deep that the talcum powder hot ashes were going down into the, the boots and there was trees falling and you could hear nothing. Like it was deadly silent. Not even a bird. No, nothing. And it was like, I, the best I can describe it, it was like, you know, Schindler's List where everything's grey except for the little girl in a red shirt and a red dress? That's exactly what it was like. It was just grey, dust particles in the air. All the trees were just either completely gone or just black sticks with a grey talcum powder and no houses. There was not any houses left. And we're looking around and we're calling and then as the tree branches and that were falling, I said, look, we've got, we've got to go, mate. Um, so who's with you at that point, Cam? Uh, the captain of the King Lake CFA. Okay, yep, yep. Um, and then I left him and I thought, what, well, I'll head back down up over the top of the hill. Um, you can see down to Melbourne and it was like a Hiroshima bomb had just gone off. It was just amazing. And then I pulled up at the car accident on top of the hill again and a lady that we asked earlier to just stand by just in case a fire truck ran into the car, she was still sitting there. And I said, you're joking, you're still here. We've asked for help all night and nothing's came. So I got on the radio and I said, look, yeah, King Lake's gone. Um, I've still got a body in the car here that needs to be set off and I need assistance. And the last conversation I had with... D24 was, Mal would be worried about who's going to do the paperwork. Please tell me that's not right. That's exactly what they said. So cop that. So I just grabbed the mouthpiece, threw that at the windscreen. I thought, well, you can stick that right up your kyber. Um, and then while I was sitting there, it was probably about 9 o'clock, um, the Sarge come on a duty, John and Elk. So from about 2 in the morning to about – I'm thinking it was eight or nine. I was by myself, and then John rocked up, and so what were you doing by yourself between two and nine? Oh, just yeah, helping people. Um, calls for help just in relation to um, getting out of driveways and um, going to all the CFA stations and making sure everyone was all right. Um, yeah, just. Things that you could do on your own and, like, the amount of people who come up, what's happening, what do you do? And, like, I understand that on the night, the uniform and the locals, if I had said sit in the corner there, suck your thumb and sit on your head for an hour, they would have done it. And it was just amazing because, like, I even myself would see a CFA uniform and they go, oh, they'd know. So no doubt they'd see the police uniform and say, right, he'd know, and so everyone would come to the police, or to me. So it was a little bit overawing, and then um, 
Yeah, nine o'clock. Did you feel deserted, Cam? Like I imagine you would. Like were you angry that nobody was coming to help? Yeah. Yeah, just strange. And I kept thinking I could understand when the firestorm come up and over at six o'clock. I've got no problem with that. I, I wouldn't send anyone. But, you know, two, three in the morning, then nine o'clock in the morning, right through to five o'clock the next night on Sunday night, yeah, no one came. Why didn't they come, Cam? I just can't get my head around that. <laughs> oh, I still ask myself the same. I don't know. And look, and then John rocked up at the car accident. He said, what's happening? I said, oh, let Papa's in the car. And he goes, what's going on? And I just said, I don't know. And just, I must have been the look of my face. He said, let's go back to the station. So we sat down and we thought, what do we do now? Do we break into the um, local shire buildings and get all the rate paying notices and just go from house to house or because there was no fences there was no property lines there was no houses it was just dust and flames and you think and then the job started coming in um welfare check welfare check welfare check and i think by the in the first 10 15 minutes at the station we had um four or five welfare checks so and then, unfortunately, the first house was number five Reserve Road in King Lake, which was where Ross had taken his kids, Ross Buchanan had taken his kids. Um, so we pulled up on the street and, look, oh, I'll tell you right now, I didn't want to get out. <laughs> um, so we walk up the driveway and there was five in that house. There was um, young Neve and Macca, um, their uncle, and two girl twins who worked at the supermarket that lived down the road, they'd ran there for safety as well. There was five there. We located them. Um, and then... Tell me about locating them. How did you manage that? Um, I switched off. You'd have to, wouldn't you? Yeah, I, I didn't want to be there because I knew, like, of all places, the first house to get called to is I know that Ross's um, in-law's house. And, and like Ross is your mate, isn't he? Like, so you know these people. Well, well, I, I, I do know because of the present footy club, and my kids went to school with their kids, and yeah. So I, I, and then sort of Ross himself built a good friendship after Black Saturday. But um, yeah, I, but then I suppose I had to take photos of everything as well. So not only I'm walking up the driveway, looking around, scratching around, but as soon as anything was located, we had to photograph it. So double double whammy, thanks. And walking down the driveway there, I thought, like, there can't be anything. That's just, well, blah, blah, that's shit. So we get in the car and we go to the next house and another bloke on you um, said, look, I've, Heard people at the house next door. It's a young family. Um, we don't know if they got out. So we located um, two young kids and the parents at the front door of the house. They'd perished. Um, and photos again? Photos again of in location. And then the worst part is, oh, this even chokes me up now. It's, it's kids, you know, like – 
parents and older people, yeah, you've had a life, but, you know, there's 14, 9, and I think the other kids were like 7 and 8, I, I think off the top of my head. They just started. And the worst part, they've ran to parents and adults for safety, but it hasn't helped them. So anyway, <clears throat> we left that house and then the third house up in Baldspur Road, we drove in one of the driveways, looking around, it was a mud brick house and it had actually exploded outwards. And there was an elderly couple in the driveway still um, embraced each other, but um, it was, I would say they'd been in the house until the very last minute. And, you know, I suppose... The best today I could describe it is the Terminator. You know those um, drawings of the human body where it's just muscle and sinew, there's no actual skin on the body? Well, there's like two Terminators cuddling on the driveway and that was something I never, ever thought I would see. I hope I never see again. Um, again, photos, location. Um, got back in the car after the first three houses and thought, that's 11. How many more are we going to find? Um, so we went to check a couple of houses. I, there was a house with a swimming pool cover on it, and I thought for sure someone's got to be under that, but luckily there wasn't. And I ended up talking to a mate of mine who survived in his garage sucking the oxygen out of his carpet. And he said during the fire – the um, on the windows, all the material from the blinds was sticking to the glass and igniting on the inside. And he said, so you had to get up and do that and then jump back down and suck, suck the oxygen out of the thing. So it was pretty intense. Um, and then, and look, then we drove around and we had to fuel up. And so we headed off down to Whittlesey. Now, this is where it just astonishes me. At the bottom of the hill going to Whittlesey at King Lake near the turn off to Turong Reservoir, it flattens out. There was a traffic management point there with two police cars and three or four coppers. Keep driving and then I realise how big it is because it's daylight now. I drive into Whittlesey over the first bridge before you get the footy ground. There would have had to have at least been 15 20 coppers and a couple of cars sitting there stopping traffic from going up to King Lake. I get to the football ground and it is just buzzing with emergency services. Go to the other football ground um, where it was like a meeting point that was just blue uniforms everywhere. And I, as John got out to go and speak to someone, I sat in a car and I thought – what, what, why are you here? Why aren't you helping people? And I thought this, even the MFB went up there in their trucks during the night. There was ambos up there. I ran into two coppers at the King Lake Police Station early in the morning when I was by myself, and I said, oh, beauty, back up. And they both said, no, 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 we're just here escorting the ambos and we're out of here. And I thought, so it was a it was a lonely few hours, but and then as Whittlesey just, oh, I suppose it just sucked the soul out of me. 
just seeing everyone there, I thought, well, you know, you join Vic Pole and you look at the badge on your shoulder and you think, yeah, well, we're all sort of there to help each other, but obviously not. And then we come back um, yeah, up to King Lake going around, went to a lot of other houses just checking, helping people, helping the Ambos get down to um, – sheds and things like that and houses where other people had sort of got shelter and then went back to the police station and the afternoon shift come back on. It was um, Roger um, and at the same time the boss and the inspector rock in the police station. Five o'clock, Sunday afternoon. And I said, oh, I'm going home. They've gone, oh, you've already been home. And I said, I have not been home. I'm going home now. And they just looked at me and I walked out and I drove down to King Lake West to see if I could find Laura and the kids. They had gone. I don't know where they were. And then I found out they were in Whittlesea at my cousin's who he's an inspector and come up and grab them. Um, so I think I got down to Whittlesea at about eight. Of, oh, was it eight? And I remember walking through the back door and Laura just, yeah, just embracing Laura and and I was told earlier on that Sean, they saw her drive down off the mountain earlier that day. So I thought she was off the mountain. But then I found out she was next door to our house in O'Grady's Road in a bath with a friend of hers as the fire went up over the house while the parents were out finding it. So this is my daughter, yeah. Um, so I thought during the night that because um, she was buzzing around in a little white Hyundai XL, and they said, no, we saw Sean go down through Whittlesea early in this afternoon. So I thought, yeah, Sean was all good and she was off the mountain. Um, But, yeah, get down to Whittlesea. And then the next morning my phone just wouldn't stop ringing. But from Sunday night to Monday morning, uh, Ross's wife, Beck, um, rang me and a couple of times and said, is it true that Neve and Macca have gone? And... Well, I had no right to say yes, it was them because, yeah, I've found people but and the size and everything. But um, so I just had to keep saying, look, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, you, you couldn't, as I said, and as you said, you, you couldn't ID, so it's not professional to do that. But also, um, I don't know, it'd be like splitting up over a text message, wouldn't it? It'd be telling them over the phone, like, if you've got any ghoulies, go and say, look, unfortunately, this has happened. So I couldn't do it over the phone. And then um, I was getting phone calls left, right and centre from all the locals. We can't get up in the King Lake. What do you know about this? What do you know about that? So we organised, there was probably about four or five utes and cars pulled up in the main street of King Lake in Whittlesea, filled up with everything from contacted the pub and they said, well, we need um, women's toiletries and things like that. So, And the supermarkets in Whittlesea were brilliant. They said, just load up. So we loaded up four or five utes and come back up the hill. So there's any police helping you at this stage, Cam? No, no. They were stopping people from going up. So, which... Including themselves. Yes. So... We went around the back way and then went up and I stopped and I said, look, these people are with me. We've got generators because there's no running water. We've got uh, ladies' uh, toiletries and things like that that people need. So we shot up there 
and it was like if going to the Main Street of King Lake on the um, Monday was like turning up at somewhere like oh, it sounds awful, but somewhere like Ethiopia, just dust and sun everywhere, and then trucks full of um, water bottles, mattresses, things just rocking up. And I thought, wow, this is – then the only letdown was the CFA people had barbies going since Saturday night and all the locals um, had brought all their meat and everything from their freezers to the barbecue because everyone had to eat. But then the salvos and that rocked up Monday afternoon and the fights that had, you're not supposed to do this, you're not to do that, no more of this, you can't serve food like that. Really? Yep. You know, the only time during that whole four or five-week period, the only time things ran in harmony and to just like clockwork was the Sunday when there was no one up there. Everyone banded together. The CFA trucks were going from house to house. We were going to house to house. And then it just turned to the proverbial. Can you believe what that man has been through? and what he's done for so many people. Well, if you thought that this week was pretty heroic, have a listen to next week. You will be just as frustrated, (laughs) just as angry, but also just as impressed as I am. It, It was such a privilege to talk to Cameron. And next week, his, his sense of humour is still there, isn't it? Anyway, look, look forward to talking to you next week and for you listening to part two of my interview with the one and only Cameron Kane. What a man. Thanks. Have a great week. Hey, it's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Hello, guess who? Just a quick interruption here to let you know you can now become a Narell Fraser Interviews Patreon. How exciting! Simply go to www.patreon. That's P for Peter, A T R E O N for Narell.com and search for Narell Fraser Interviews. And to all of you out there who continue to support me, thank you so much.